How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. All right, Jessica is here today. Doug is off enjoying the extended holiday. And yeah, heading into a new year, and there's all sorts of great projects that these two are going to be working on. But they'll be here every Sunday. Good friends from Davy Tree coming back for another year as well. So a lot of exciting stuff to get to. But let's begin with something that's always exciting, the opportunity to win a $25 gift certificate from the great folks at Sorgles. Randy Sorgle was here last week with Doug, did a tremendous job. So if you're the 10th caller at 412-922-1020, you will win that gift certificate. And if you'd like to talk to Jessica about everything that is gardening, 866-391-1020. Dollar Bank, Instant Access, KDKRadio.com, or you can text us on the Red Automotive line, the best deal in town. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. I'm horticulturist Jessica Walliser, and I hope everybody had a nice holiday. And we are on to the new year, and always a sign of the new year for gardeners is a peek in the mailbox at all of the new seed catalogs that are rolling in. Um, I just received a few over the last couple of days, and that's a sign of a good gardening year to come. So I would like to talk uh, during this first segment here, give you some ideas and tips and suggestions for shopping from those seed catalogs, because it's not so simple as just flipping the pages and finding things that look appealing to you. It should be um, a little bit more scientific than that. So um, the first thing you want to do before buying anything from a seed catalog is to sort through the existing seeds that you have first. And if you're anything like me, and I know Doug is too, we're sort of seed hoarders. We like to hold on to every last little seed we have because we know the potential that each one of those seeds has. So however you store your seeds, whether it's in glass jars in the fridge or in their packets in a, in a cool, dark place, you want to go through those existing seeds and see what you have. Sort through them. Every seed packet is marked with a date. And the date that it's marked with is usually the, the year that that seed was packed because when they sell it, they have to sell fresh seed that's marked for that year. And so the year on the seed packet will give you an idea of how long those seeds will last. And I've written a number of articles and there's obviously a lot of online articles too about how long seeds will last. It does depend on the variety of seeds. So for example, you know, onions have a a far shorter lifespan um, as a seed than something like a bean would, which has a longer uh, lifespan. So you want to do a little bit of research, find out how long they retain their viability, see how many seeds you already have in stock. Then what you want to do is actually test those seeds that you have. If you have a full packet of, let's say, pepper seeds, and you're not really sure whether they're going to be viable or not, you can do a little germination test. And this you can do this with all seeds. You can soak um, about 10 of them out of that seed packet, or you could even do five uh, in a little bit of water and then put them in a damp paper towel and then put that paper towel in a plastic Ziploc, zipper top bag And then put that bag on the top of your refrigerator for a couple of days and check it every maybe three or four days for signs of the seeds germinating. And within about 14 days, you'll have all of the seeds that are going to germinate will germinate for most vegetables. So take a look and see the percentage of those seeds that germinate. So let's say you put 10 seeds in that packet, but only three of them germinate. You have only a germination rate of about 30% which is really low, and those seeds might not be worth holding on to to plant into the garden. But if you have eight or nine out of those 10 seeds that germinate, then those seeds are worth 
getting started under grow lights or planting out into the garden, uh, depending on which variety they are. So you can test for that germination rate and see whether or not those seeds are worth holding on to. Once you have your list of all the ones that you have that have good germination viability, then it's time to go ahead and sort through those seed catalogs. Now, you don't just want to flip through the catalog and say, ooh, that's a pretty tomato or that's a pretty zinnia. I'm going to go ahead and get that. What you also want to do is pay attention to the description of that variety. And most good quality seed catalogs, especially with the vegetable section, will note disease resistance with each one of those varieties with a code word or code series of code letters that they have. So for example, uh, next to a particular variety of cucumber, they might have something like a PM and th- that code letter code PM stands for powdery mildew. And that means that that particular variety of cucumber is resistant to powdery mildew. Each pathogen, whether it's a virus or a a fungal disease, has this secret code, right? These code letters um, that tell you whether that particular variety is resistance to that pathogen. So it might be a V for verticillium wilt um, or an F for fusillium wilt. And you want to take a look at that code where there'll be a key also with what all those letters mean somewhere in that seed catalog. And this is really important when you're shopping for vegetables, because if you want to have, you know, a disease-free garden or a you know a higher chance of having a disease-free garden, you want to choose varieties that are resistant to common pathogens. So paying attention to that seed code and the, the, the key in the catalog somewhere will give you a jump start. It'll help you be a better organic gardener because if that variety never develops that pathogen in the first place, you won't have to reach for any fungicides to take care of the problem or any other products to take care of the problem. It has a natural innate resistance bred into that variety. So that's a really important way to shop from a seed catalog. It's not just about picking what you think is the prettiest tomato. It's choosing one that also has a good natural disease resistance as well. How do you restrict? It's like a kid in a candy store that you just don't spend too much. Your eyes aren't bigger than your wish list. You know what? It really, it really is. And this is especially true if you get like a gift certificate from right. a seed catalog because you have, you know, you think, okay, I've got $50 to spend or $75 to spend. This is all I'm going to spend. And then you end up spending $150 on seeds. It's really, really easy on to page do. one, right on page one. So that's why it's important to go through your, your existing seeds first and really see what the priorities are. It's always fun to try new varieties. But maybe you want to share the, that seed packet with a friend. So you want to try a new variety of tomato and it comes with 15 seeds. Well, most people want to try a new variety, but they don't want to try 15 seeds. So this is where something like having a group of your gardening friends get together and say, okay, who wants to try this variety? Let's split this seed packet up. And one person pays for one variety and one person pays for another. And then you swap those seeds. And you you can really have a... a a kind of make a fun little party out of it and, and really do a lot of um, saving in that regards. And I always sort of make a wish list of everything I wish I could afford. And then I whittle it down based on the reality, you know, list. The rea- right, the reality list. I still often end up overspending, but what are you going to do? If you had your top five seeds that you could purchase in abundance, what would they be? Or just even top three? Oh my gosh. Well, so I love to buy as many flower seeds as I can. Um, because a lot of times you'll go to the garden center and you'll buy like a four or six pack of a particular flower and it costs a lot more money than a seed packet that might contain a hundred seeds. So things like zinnias and cosmos, uh, marigolds, they're real easy to grow from seed either just directly sown in the garden or you start them indoors under lights um, as the season approaches. 
you can save a lot of money by buying as much. So so those types of flowers, I definitely do. Um, and always my cucumbers, I always do those uh, direct seeding. Zucchini are another good one. I don't know if I could pick a, a top 10. Um, it's just... It's fun. It's a fun little um, dream about the summer this time of year. 866-391-1020. Dollar Bank Instant Access. KDKRadio.com. You can text us on the Right Automotive line. The best deal in town. Congratulations to Jan of Pittsburgh, winner of that $25 gift certificate from Sorgles. How happy are you that Davey Tree's coming back? I'm excited. Thrilled. I love having those guys come in and talk to us about tree care. And they're the true experts. So it's always a pleasure to have them on. All right, here we go. Uh, getting a little busy via Right Automotive text line, best deal in town. By the way, all of our lines are open. If you have a question for Jessica in the way of gardening, and you know, you've called in recent weeks, you get that busy signal. Holiday is here. Pretty much guaranteed a spot. So call right now. Ashley Funyak, our producer. She'll get you on hold and we'll get you on the air. So 866-391-1020 bank instant access kdkradio.com all right joe from penn hills rob uh and jessica will a mulch container or a bird feeder attract rodents thank you so a mulch container i'm assuming they might mean a compost bin with that um and it shouldn't attract rodents and the the compost bins that you should have especially in a, a more urban area or suburban where there's you know homes close together it should be a fully closed system so it should have a lid on top of the compost bin but even if it doesn't one way to keep rodents out of a bin like that is to make sure that anytime you put any kitchen scraps in it that you actually bury them down into the pile so keep a little shovel out by your compost pile dig a little hole into it and then add your kitchen scraps and then bury it with some leaves or grass clippings or something like that if you just throw it on top then yeah you do risk attracting rodents Certainly bird feeders, yes, they can. Um, you're going to want to get like a like a squirrel baffle or uh, something on the pole of the bird feeder to keep the squirrels from climbing up because what they do is they tend to sort of dig through the seeds and end up with a lot of waste of seeds that fall onto the ground, which are definitely attractive to rodents. There's not a lot you can do about that aside from trying to have a bird feeder that keeps the seed contained and only allows the birds to get them um, as opposed to having rodents that come. But you have to expect. I mean, it would be you like... You do. I mean, it's winter. They want to have lunch too, <laughs> yeah. so... I mean, it's like yeah. a, if your neighbor w- would be hanging sausage on the clothesline and you basically <laughs> were outside with nowhere to eat, you'd be going after that, right? Right? <laughs> that is a way I've never looked at it, Rob, <laughs> but I'm it's, sure, it's I'm sure absolutely you never will, true. You never will again either. <laughs> Here's another one for you, Jessica. I heard that mulched recycled pine trees kills Japanese knotweed. Not that I've ever heard of. I mean, I've read and read and read a whole bunch of studies about Japanese knotweed control and have never come across that um, particular way to control them. The, the way that has been most studied, actually out of the University of California, Davis, is uh, a way that they do it organically is a, a process called tarping, where they have you cut the Japanese knotweed all the way down to the ground, rake up all of the clippings and throw them away, and then cover the entire area with a really heavy gauge tarp, like what you'd cover your boat with. Super heavy gauge tarp, um, and actually extended by five or six feet out beyond the edges of that patch of Japanese knotweed, and then bury the edges of the tarp under the ground so that you're completely restricting and blocking the light from that area, which will prevent the plant from photosynthesizing and will eventually kill the roots. But in the meantime, you've got a big old ugly boat tarp. Um, but that's the way that they suggest that is the best method of control. I really don't think just using pine chips on it 
um, you know, would control it. It would have to be, I mean, oh my goodness, it would have to be just loads and loads. And even then, I mean, this stuff can come up through concrete. So I, I don't think that the pine shredded pine chips would make any difference. 866-391-1020, dollar bank, instant access, kdkimity.com. Texas on the right out of middle line, best deal in town. So you go into Coons Market or you, you know, for some school project uh, or fundraiser, you buy your burpee seeds. So you're just starting off. This is your very first year. You love Doug and Jess. You really got the garden bug and you're going to plant that garden in the spring. Some of the top things that you need to look for as far as a starter's garden when it comes to vegetables. I mean, you've transformed into flowers. I get that. But a lot of folks actually want to grow stuff they can eat. So what are some of the best and sure-fired winners for the gardener novice heading into the spring? Well, I mean, the, the best way to make yourself a sure-fired winner when starting a vegetable garden is, is to begin with the right site. Choose a site that receives full sun, uh, at least six to eight hours of full sun per day. That's required by almost all vegetables. So that that is a number one. Number two, try to choose a site that does not have large trees nearby, um, not just because of the shade that they can provide, but also because their roots can be quite competitive with vegetable roots. And you do not want to have that competition with your um, vegetables. You want to make sure that it's an, you know far away from large established trees. Um, the next thing that you want to do is invest in a soil test. And soil tests, you can get them through the Penn State um, Extension Service, whatever county you're in, in the blue pages of the phone book, or you can just look it up online. Um, you're going to want to find your county's uh, extension service and they will have a soil test that you can buy and I think they run about nine dollars and you can actually do it this time of year you can do it pretty much year-round as long as the ground is not frozen and this is a good time to do it because it will tell you the nutrient content of your soil it will tell you the pH which is incredibly important for a good vegetable growth and that nine dollars is very well spent because it will help you amend the soil correctly to get a right uh, and a good nutritional balance for those vegetables um, and once you have all that in order you add a little bit of um, organic matter to the soil which can be bagged compost it can be bulk compost you can get um, that leaf compost that most of the municipalities give away that you know they they collect the leaves from residents and then compost them and give that compost away you can add that to the soil so about two three inches of organic matter should be added to that vegetable garden at the start of each growing season and then you can do things like start to think about which varieties to plant um, it's really important i mean all green thumbs start with the soil it's impossible for you to have a green thumb without thinking about what the quality of your soil is first, because that's where it all begins. All right. We've got uh, some more right automotive text messages. Again, if you want to get a gardening question in for Jessica, call us 866-391-1020. All right. Let me just make sure this is uh, correct here, but it says, Jessica, do you not check to see if the seeds have been modified to create their resistance to issues? Okay, so this is a this is an interesting thing that they're talking about here. So I believe when they use the word modify, that they're talking about something that we commonly call genetically modified organism, a GMO, right? They're all over the news, GMO. GMO technically should be genetically engineered, and that's where they're talking about something like Roundup Ready soybeans, or where they have been genetically engineered. Um, by bringing in genes from another organism to resist spraying an herbicide called Roundup. As of this time, 
and the foreseeable future, as far as I can tell, there are no genetically engineered or what we commonly call GMO seeds available to home gardeners. They are only available to big ag. They're not available to home gardeners. So when you see these the, the safe seed pledge and we don't sell genetically modified seeds, what they're talking about, is, they're saying that as a sales pitch, but there are no home gardening seed catalogs that are able to sell genetically engineered seeds. So it's not allowed. So I I don't know why they take this as a, they're kind of playing into the hype um, with genetic engineered. However, when we do talk about plants that have natural resistance bred into them, it is bred into them through classic breeding techniques. This is natural crosses that guys like, you know, Gregor Mendel, who was doing it with the pea seeds and figured out how genetics all work. Um, the people have been breeding plants since the dawn of agriculture. And classic plant breeding is a very easy way um, through multiple generations of crossing plants to get a natural resistance built into a particular variety. So let's say they have, um, you know, 40 of the same variety of cucumber growing and they notice that one or two of those plants are more resistant to powdery mildew than others. Well, then they take that plant and then they naturally cross it and they um, selectively cross it with another plant that has natural, another cucumber plant that has a natural um, resistance to powdery mildew. And over many generations and many crosses, then they end up with a stable variety that is resistant to that powdery mildew. So in the seed catalogs, when you see that resistance, that is through natural or through classic plant breeding techniques. It's not some funky splicing of somebody else's genes into the plant. That's only allowed in big agriculture right now. Now, I don't want to get into the debate of whether it's wrong or right, because as an organic gardener, you probably already know how I feel about that. But don't. it's not something you have to worry about from the home gardening seed front, because they're not available at this point to, to home gardeners. All right. Um, you ready to go to the phones? Sure. All right. Let's take a call. Let's go to uh, Brad. You were on fire there. You know how you were just... Well, you know, it's a topic that it kind of ticks me off a little bit sometimes that seed catalogs use it as a selling point when the truth is that you, at this point, you, they're all free of genetically engineered and genetically modified seeds because we home, they're not allowed to be sold at this point to home gardeners. So, um, it's a, it's a point that I get, you know, I do get a little hot under the collar about it. That's good. (laughs) Let's go to Brad in Clarion. Hey, Brad, good morning. Welcome to Kitty K Radio. Good morning. I'd like to know your thoughts about uh, manure uh, and fertilizer. Uh, last year, I put a pretty heavy load of manure in my garden. Would that suffice for this year also, or would I just use some fertilizer, and, uh, like some 10, 20, 20 or something like that, or 10, 5, 10, 10, or what? Okay, good morning, Brad. It's not bear manure, is it? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I know about the bears you have. <laughs> well, I, I went like this. I went, boy, is that something new? No, that's yeah, Brad. I, He's, I he and I both had a bear in our backyard around about the same time. So, yeah, no bear manure for sure. Um, actually, I just had an article in the Trib about this use of manure, and I think it's it's definitely a safety issue with manure, especially with E. coli and lettuce, you know, the, all these out, yeah, you right. know, recalls and stuff in the news. So the prime thing with manure usage in garden is safety. And I know that that's not necessarily what you're, you're speaking about specifically, but I'd just like to urge all of our listeners to comp- make sure that manure is fully composted first. And I'm not talking about just letting it sit in a pile. I'm talking about actually turning the pile, mixing it with other ingredients. That's the only way that you can safely ensure that pathogens like E. coli um, have been 
uh, processed out of that manure. Even manure that's been sitting in a pile for a year or two is not considered composted by the National Organic Standards. So it's really, really important that you you make sure that it's composted. But as far as whether or not you should add more every year, a soil test is going to be the thing that tells you whether or not you need to. The nutrients and organic matter in manure can last for several years, but the only way to know for sure is to take that soil test. Coming back with more, stay with us. The Organic Gardeners continues on KDK Radio. We have some uh, right automotive text messages coming in, but this is the only show that I actually have to pre-read this stuff because the <laughs> words are a lot bigger than I ever learned in school. So I'm going to let you start the half hour. Go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, before the break, we were talking about using manure safely in the garden. Sorry if this is if you're having breakfast as we're talking about this, but it is important that you use it safely and that you always wear gloves when handling it, even if it's um, old manure. And the one thing I wanted to mention is, the, the manure that you know is going to be safe to use would be a processed manure. So if you buy, let's say, a dehydrated manure in the garden, or sometimes it will be previously frozen, right? So um, processed, commercially processed manure that's then sold in a bag in a garden center, that is always pathogen-free because any potential pathogens are killed during that process. So um, that's stuff that's always safe to use. But speaking of composting things, I just wanted to mention that the Pennsylvania Resources Council has some great workshops coming up. Um, and you can find out about them at prc.org. And the Pennsylvania Resources Council, they, they have some composting workshops coming up. So if you're a little nervous about starting a compost pile, you're not quite sure how to do it, um, you want to make sure that you do it safely, that you don't have rodents um, in the bin, as, as somebody was talking about earlier uh, uh, in the show this uh, this morning. These composting workshops are, are happening all across the city throughout the month of March. They cost $70 for the class, but then participants receive an 82-gallon compost bin after completing the class. There's various dates and locations around Pittsburgh that they're being held. And then in addition to the composting classes, the PRC also offers rain barrel workshops where they teach you how to safely use a rain barrel, what you can use that water on, how you can collect it, how to hook it up to your downspouts. Um, And participants, those classes are $80 there in April. And when you finish the class, you receive a $55 gallon rain barrel. So you can find out about both the composting and the rain barrel workshops at the PRC by going to their website, prc.org. And they're great classes. I've sat in on a few of them. Um, they're excellent information. And then, of course, you get the, the bins or the rain barrel after the class. So I would encourage our callers to go out and sign up for one of those classes. All right. Uh, well, congratulations to Rose from Beaver Falls, winner of that gift certificate from Janowski's. Okay. Uh, when is the best time to uh, prune a peach tree? Thank you, Anne. Sure. Peach trees are best pruned during the dormant season. So while you could do them now, I would actually suggest waiting until maybe late February or early March to do the pruning. Um, And this is true of all fruit trees. So if you have apples, pears, peaches, plums, um, always during the dormant season. Um, And then I usually follow my pruning with an application of what's called dormant oil, Mm -hmm. which is a heavy grade horticultural oil um, that you can buy at almost every local garden center. And that's sprayed onto the bare branches of that fruit tree and it smothers any overwintering pests or pest eggs and will help you be a better organic gardener throughout the growing season. By the way, as I ask you this question about nematodes, they're not the kind that hop. What are nematodes? So nematodes are microscopic roundworms that... that, uh, they live in soils all over the world. There are there are bad ones that can cause 
uh, different uh, issues with plants, and then there are good, there are beneficial nematodes as well that can help us control various pests in the garden. All right, thank you for that education, Professor. And now let me ask you this question. <laughs> Last year, I used nematodes to control wire worms mm-hmm. in my potatoes. It worked well. I'm still eating potatoes out of the garden. Do I need to use nematodes again this year, or are the wireworms gone? Excellent question. So, as I mentioned, there are beneficial species of nematodes, and there are different species that can control and manage different soil-dwelling pests. So, let's say you have a Japanese beetle problem. Well, there are beneficial nematodes that you can apply to your turf grass that will help you control the larval stage of Japanese beetles, which are the grubs that we talk about. There's also different species that attack things like wireworms, or um, iris spores or flea beetles in their larval stage. So they're also applied to the soil. So in this case, they applied a beneficial nematode to their potato patch to help control wireworms. The deal with most of the species of beneficial nematodes that are used to control pests is that they do not survive the winter. So you have to reapply them every spring. They're not super costly, um, but you know, if you don't have to reapply them, why would you want to spend that money? But the deal is, if you're planting your potatoes in the same spot every year, you're making them more prone to pest issues simply because you're not able to to rotate them. So I would definitely suggest using those beneficial nematodes um, at least every other year in that potato patch, if not every year. Um, You can try to skip a year and see how it goes, but I would definitely recommend um, using them every year just because wireworms are something that can really build up in the soil and that will help manage them very very effectively. All right, we have a couple of calls waiting in the wings, but these folks were first, so let's take care of them right out on the text messages, best deal in town. Jessica, did you ever grow a passion flower? I have one three years old, always took in for the winter. It grew like crazy. This year I left it outside, still living, uh, though they were cold sensitive. Are they invasive? Okay, well, there's different, as with most plants, there's different species of passion vines. So there is one that is fully hardy here in Pennsylvania. It's called the maypop. Um, and it is one that uh, they call it a May pop because it seems to you think it's dead and then all of a sudden it pops out of the ground in May and it's purple flowered and it is fully hardy here but I wouldn't call it I wouldn't call it invasive, but I would say it's a very fast-growing, aggressive vine and that you ask, it starts from the ground, but it will grow up to 25 feet tall in a single season, and it does spread sort of by underground roots, although it stays basically in a clump. Um, so if you have that species, it will be fully hardy. But if you've got one of the tropical species, you know, with red flowers or pink flowers, um, they are not hardy here. And while it still may be up this time of year, it might not survive the very cold winter temperature. So without knowing which species it is, it's hard to say whether or not it's going to survive. All right. Hi, Rob. Jess, thumbs up, thumbs down for grafted veggie plants. Thanks, Tom. Driving on I-79. Hopefully you're not texting while you're driving. He was using speech to text, I would like to think, right? Well, yeah, so. <laughs> absolutely. Um, uh, for me, it's neutral. So the grafted vegetables are, how, how they do this is they take a variety, let's say a variety of tomatoes that has excellent disease resistance, and they attach the root system of that variety to the shoot system of a variety that has um, maybe something like Brandywine, which is an excellent large fruited variety with terrific flavor, but not so good disease resistance. So when they graft that root system onto the shoot system, that resulting plant has all of the good traits of both the root system and the shoot system. So you've got that delicious Brandywine tomato, but it happens to have an improved disease resistance. So 
that's the theory behind it. And as we know, grafting works beautifully with fruit trees. I know a lot of European, um, uh, certainly greenhouse culture will use grafted watermelons and grafted cucumbers with great results. I have not had sort of any kind of stellar results in trialing them in my own vegetable garden, but I certainly know on a commercial basis, they have had a lot of praise um, in using these grafted varieties. So I feel like it's something that you have to experiment with yourself and see the difference. Maybe grow a grafted variety of um, uh, of eggplant side by side with one that's not grafted of the same variety and see if you get a different result because it so much depends on your soil health and, and the disease pressure in that particular year as well. So I'm sort of neutral on them at this point. All right, lots of calls coming up with Jessica. We'll get back next hour, Coons Cooking Hour, New Year's Traditions, and then it's Heffron Tillotson, your money, and you, Jim and Jamie Meredith, and then the Coons Market Black and Gold Sunday Show at 11 a.m. Ah, we are back. Our home stretch pork recipes. It is all about those great New Year's traditions. Do you have any New Year's traditions that you do every year? Pork and sauerkraut. Do you? Mm-hmm. I do love it. I grew up in Pennsylvania, Dutch territory, so can't have anything but. That's like right from the homemade uh, wonderful sauerkraut that they make in places like Lancaster and all that. Yep. Yep, that's near where I grew up, and my grandmother, my whole, my father's whole side is Pennsylvania Dutch. So. You know, I always envy the Amish because a, they're just great people, but they work so hard so they can eat whatever they want. You know, what I mean? <laughs> they don't have to worry about calories, butter, lard, oh, bacon, it's my, all good. My kind of people. You know, I wouldn't last a day with some of those workers. I'd be done. I'm they'd, pretty sure you wouldn't. No offense. No, they, they, they peel me off the road. I'm telling you, they work hard. Let's go to Ann in Vanderbilt. Hey, Ann, how you doing? Good morning. Um, I get primrose for Christmas. I've never heard of those, and I wanted to know how to take care of them. They have a leaf like uh, an African violet. Yes, they do, and primrose are actually lovely indoor plants. Um, They're sort of meant to be a temporary indoor plant, however, so they'll bloom for you for a couple of weeks. You should put them in a bright but not direct sunlight, uh, so somewhere in a room that stays a little bit cooler, maybe like 68, 66 degrees is best. Um, Water them, keep them regularly watered. Do not allow them to fully dry out because a plant will wilt fairly quickly. Um, The varieties that are forced to bloom out of season in a greenhouse are not typically hardy here in Pennsylvania. So it would be, you know, I would be very surprised if you planted it outside in the spring and it survived um, in, uh, long enough to bloom again the following spring. So they're meant to be a, a temporary plant to enjoy indoors for a couple of weeks. And then most people just, they sort of die off and most people will toss them after that. Oh, my son's going to think I killed it. <laughs> well, they do, they're, when they're forced to bloom out of season like this, I mean, this is not their normal bloom time. It does take a lot of energy um, for that plant to produce blooms out of season to be forced to bloom. And so a lot of times, unfortunately, the result is that they are just a temporary plant. But enjoy them while you can because they really do have beautiful, colorful blooms. And I did kill kill one of my plants. I told you I would. Yeah, well, <laughs> they do require very specific conditions again because it's a tropical plant that's growing, you know, forced to grow in conditions that it doesn't normally grow in. So, unfortunately, that is the result a lot of times of, of our holiday plants. Let's go to Rhett in Swickley. Hey, Rhett, how are you? Welcome to KDK Radio. Good morning, Rob and Jessica. Um, I have a question about a, um, a little one-foot Alberta spruce tree that um, my mother-in-law received as a gift, and we were wondering if we could put it in the ground at this point, maybe um, even cover it in burlap or something. 
Yeah, actually with dwarf Alberta spruces, they are fully hardy here. In fact, they're very cold hardy. Um, mm-hmm. You will have better luck on getting it to survive by planting it outside than you will by keeping it indoors. However, okay. I wouldn't just go from inside to outside just like that. You, I would slowly acclimate it. So I would take it outdoors for a few hours every day and then, and then move it into a very cool room in the house. Uh, and gradually increase the amount of time that it's spending outdoors until it's out, outside pretty much all day long. Then I would go ahead and plant it somewhere outside. Try to choose a shelter, uh, choose a sheltered location. Um, if you if you want it to be in a sheltered location, but that's not where you permanently want it, you can actually just sink the whole pot into the ground for the winter and then plant it for real in the spring. Uh, and that will allow you to keep it in a slightly more sheltered place. I wouldn't cover it in burlap or anything like that because it still needs to photosynthesize. Mm-hmm. So you could you could form a little, a little like fence of burlap around the outside of it, but you still want it to be open on top so the plant can receive some sunshine. But I think gradually acclimating it would be a better idea. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, listen, this is your State of the Gardening address, so you got about a minute or two left. Uh, Heading into 2019, now I could say, is there something that excites you, but everything excites you about gardening, but how do you see the, uh, the year unfolding in your line of work? Oh my gosh. Well, I think the year, it's hard to predict how the year is going to unfold until we see how the winter unfolds. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we get a lot of snow cover, which will help insulate plants through the winter, it's actually better for most of our plants to have a nice layer of snow for a long extended period of time because it does insulate them. We have less winter damage, especially from drying winds, if we have a good snow cover. Um, Also will depend on the amount of precipitation that we get as far as snow melt and rain. Uh, we have had so much rain, the ground is so waterlogged that that really can mess with the soil structure, which can cause challenges that can last through the whole you know, following season, especially if, if your soil is, is compacted, having it waterlogged will exacerbate any problems with root rot and things like that. So the kind of gardening season we're going to have is depends on what kind of winter we have, of course. So, but I'm I'm always hedging my bets on a great year, of course, and especially in the vegetable garden. I hope it. I hope we have a drier season next year in the vegetable garden than we had this past year because we had a lot of fungal issues because of how wet it was in the spring. Only because my mind works this way. Why do they call hedges hedges when actually they're bushes? <laughs> well, bushes planted in tight proximity to each other in a line, so they're meant to grow a sort of one is a hedge, right? It's meant to be a physical barrier between one place and another. So it could be a hedge, a hedge row. It's things planted close together, meant to be one solid sort of wall of shrubs. So if you were putting money aside for this year to do some landscaping, in particular hedges, would that be called a hedge fund? Yeah. Oh boy, Rob. Listen, I'm just 13 to... <laughs> years of this show. That may be the corniest joke you've come up with. And there's been quite a few. There have been. Uh, listen, <laughs> the year, what a year it's been, your career, your wonderful husband, your beautiful son, your in-laws, your mom and dad, life's siblings. Life's been pretty good for you. It has indeed. And I'm grateful for it every day. And I hope all of our listeners out there have had a, have had a great year and have a good one to look forward to again. Uh, and you know, despite the always bumps in the road, you just always remember to smile and, and always plant flowers because I think that there's, no matter how crummy things get, 
flowers can always put a smile on someone's face. But being that your dad made his career doing blacktop work and he did it in a heavy highway type of lifestyle, there were not very many bumpy roads in your life because he, <laughs> he did a good job. Hey, we got, we got one minute left and why not let's talk about this because Bill wants to get a question answered about black walnut trees and being that we're excited about Davy Tree coming back so we might as well end the year with a great tree, tree question. Uh, Bill, you've got about 30 seconds. Go ahead. Can I use black walnut sticks to support my tomato plants? I definitely would not suggest that. Black not. Wal- nope. Black walnuts produce an allelopathic compound, say that five times fast, called juglone that is produced by black walnut trees through the stems, the roots, the leaves, the fruits. And that allelopathic means it is a compound that prevents other things from growing. And it is contained in the sticks. So it will um, cause some damage to the tomatoes and to the soil in your garden. So remember, everybody, the Organic Gardeners always aim to teach you how to create a better place to garden and a safer place to live. Have a happy new year. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.